This evening I'd like to reflect on the third of the Brahma Viharas, which in Pali is mudita, which is often translated as appreciative joy. But what I would like to do this evening is actually to look at joy in a much wider sense in this practice and and this path. And the very central role that joy plays, even though I'm very well aware that joy is spoken of often much less than we speak about metta or compassion or equanimity. And yet, as I mentioned uh, when I spoke about metta, of course, all of these qualities, including joy, are very much interwoven, very much different threads in the same fabric of an ennobled and also a liberated heart and mind. Why is joy so important? Well, you know, in this path, we are often asked to find the courage to to turn towards so many layers of pain, of suffering, of fear, of distress in the world and in ourselves. And we're asked to learn how to meet all of this without being broken and without being overwhelmed. And that meeting of the difficult part of all of our lives, certainly part of our world, That meeting of the difficult without metta, without compassion, without equanimity and without joy can actually at times simply feel overwhelming. Just too much to meet. Just too much to bear. Now joy is also so essential as we turn with mindfulness towards our own bodies, our own minds, hearts, our own life experience, in which at times there's much that can feel broken and imperfect, um, sorrowful. And without joy, what can easily happen in that meeting with ourselves is that we can find ourselves becoming quite contracted around the difficult and actually very identified with the difficult. And without the qualities of the Brahma-viharas, the meeting of the difficult can even seem at times to, to magnify suffering and to magnify distress. It can also, without compassion or metta or joy or equanimity, when we turn towards ourselves in life, contractedness and and identification really has the effect also not only of magnifying suffering, but magnifying a sense of self and a sense of other. Now, joy, and I'm going to talk about it in a lot of different ways, but this gladness of heart, our capacity to bring spaciousness, to bring ease, like all of the other Brahma-Viharas, joy is not described as being a state. A state that is somehow achieved and somehow separate and apart from other states. Rather, joy is more often described as, as a path, a way of being present. A way of being, a way of meeting, way, way of being present with sadness, with sorrow, with loss, in the midst of the difficult. What we are learning to do very much in mindfulness practice is not chase some elusive state, but to cultivate our capacity for joy, our capacity for spaciousness, our capacity to be dip, to be delighted. I think in a lot of times in this practice, we just need to learn to make room for joy. In the Dhammapada, the Buddha says, 
Live in joy in love even amongst those who hate. Live in joy in health even amidst the affliction. Live in joy in peace even among, among the troubled. Look within, be still, free from fear and attachment. Know the sweet joy of the way. Learning to make room for joy. Now, joy is, as she's spoken about in many ways, there is sensual joy. There is rapture. There is celebratory joy spoken of, appreciation. There is altruistic joy spoken of in this path. There's joy spoken of in the forms of, in the way of generosity, of contentment, of gratitude, of delight, and of course the joy of the awakened heart, of the awakened mind. Now our, our minds, our hearts, we see that they have the capacity and the potential to experience so much torment, so much struggle and alienation and confusion. But you know what? It is exactly the same mind and heart that has the capacity and the potential to know profound levels of joy and ease and gladness. We don't do mind transplants here. It is the same mind with different potentials, different possibilities. Now in this path, what we're essentially being invited to do here on retreat is to find the willingness to stop, to step back a little, in a way to to relinquish, just for a little while, our busyness. And to really look carefully at our own hearts and minds, to look carefully at our own moment-to-moment experience and understand what is really going on within us. To look at this capacity for contractedness and struggle, how our worlds are being created moment-to-moment. And to also see and to nurture our capacity for gladness and for joy. Because these qualities are not accidents or experiences, but ways of being with all events and experiences. Discovering an inner well-being, discovering a spaciousness of heart that can pervade all events and experience, even the difficult In this, I think the path of joy really is as much an insight practice as any of the other Brahma Viharas. Because it's also an invitation for us to really look carefully at what it is that smothers and suffocates our capacity for joy. And to see for ourselves that we may actually not be the contracted, anxious person We think we are. Rumi even said, your grief for what you've lost lifts a mirror up to where you're bravely working. Expecting the worst, you look and instead, here's the joyful face you've been wanting to see. Your hand opens and closes, and opens and closes. If it were always a fist or always stretched open, you would be paralyzed. Your deepest presence is in every small contracting and expanding. The two is beautifully balanced and coordinated as birds' wings. Our joy, as I mentioned the other evening, it begins with metta. Our capacity to see and to respond to the capacity for goodness in ourselves and in others, no matter how deluded or how confused we or others may seem to be. 
Joy begins with the metta in our capacity to honor in ourselves and others, our shared longings for safety, for peace, for happiness, for acceptance. No matter how confused and deluded the ways that those longings may be manifested are. On an even more essential level, even before metta, joy has its roots in integrity. In integrity, in integrity of heart. The foundation upon which the whole of the path rests. We can be sure if there is no integrity in our life, there is no room for joy. Why is that so? Why is that so? Because integrity is really about learning to free our hearts from the grip of aversion, which is the source of all unethical acts or speech or thoughts. Integrity is all about learning to plant and nurture the seeds of joy when we can free our hearts and minds from the waves of blame and judgment and hatred, condemnation, moment to moment, then I think we really understand what the Buddha meant by ethics, which is thoughts and words and acts of metta. In freeing our hearts and minds from the grip of aversion, what we actually do is is learn to calm the residues Learn to free the mind of residues. The residues of blame, the residues of I should have done this, I should have done that, I wish I hadn't done this, the endless replays of regret that we engage in. Because these are often the residues of not being quite aligned with what we most deeply value in terms of metta. And actually on this ground of beginning to free our hearts of mind from residues, actually is one of the definitions of liberation the Buddha talked about, the freedom from residues. Imagine what it would be like to live our lives with that kind of commitment, to have our thoughts and our acts and our words guided from an inner wisdom and metta in which we had a very deep confidence was not going to leave a jet stream behind of agitation. But it's upon this ground for the, of, of, of integrity that we begin to experience the first taste of joy. Actually, when the Buddha spoke about integrity, he actually speaks about the bliss or the joy of blamelessness. Bliss or the joy of blamelessness. And on the, it's on that ground that we begin to open rather than contract. It's on that ground of integrity that we begin to be more still, less agitated, more at ease with ourselves, more at ease in the world rather than being obsessive and agitated. It's a training in liberation. In the Dhammapada, the Buddha says, It is the disciplined mind that invites true joy. Isn't that interesting? The disciplined mind that invites true joy. So he's really speaking about cultivating this mind of collectedness, of gatheredness, of mindfulness, that knows where not to go and knows what to cultivate. The disciplined mind invites true joy because it's not forgetful. It's not heedless. And it heals, begins to heal. Ethics begins to heal the underlying causes of suffering, our greed and hatred and delusion. There's a joy that is spoken about in the discourses, which is sensual joy. We have it in our lives. It's not a problem. Our lives can have so much loveliness in them. The world would be a much poorer place without wonderful music or art or poetry or writing. There's a sensual joy of of a warm bath. (laughs) You know, when you're cold, the joy of, of lovely food that is served to you. And you only need to walk outside here to taste that sensual joy that nature brings, the delight that comes 
through the eyes being open to the lovely, the ears being open. There is so much of this in our life and it gladdens our hearts. It has that power to begin to gladden our hearts, to just have a little taste of joy. And I think, you know, in, in, in Dharma circles, you know, we're always asked to explore this balance between what is the craving for sensual pleasure and what is the appreciation of sensual pleasure. And I think sometimes people can, people can be so paranoid about slipping into craving and clinging that, you know, they close their eyes and close their ears, you know, and the world must go away. But this is, this is a sin of over-earnestness. the sin of over-earnestness rather than simply relaxing into the loveliness that comes to us. And actually, it's not even about the lovely sights or the lovely sounds or the, the lovely taste. It's actually beginning to get a sense of what it, how that is inwardly, to have a gladdened heart, you know, to have a gladdened mind to have that quality of sensitivity and appreciation, you know, which brings a smile to your heart. Sensual joy is okay. Doesn't mean we have to pursue it. Times joy is spoken in terms of rapture. The Pali word for this is piti. And it's often associated with the blissful states um, that come through actually very deep concentration practices and absorptions. Um, There is a whole stream of practices in this tradition which lead to quite altered states of consciousness of very, very deep levels of concentration. And one of the side benefits of those, is, is a remarkable inner joy, piti, rapture. Now, the Buddha, of course, cautioned very strongly against pursuing these states as ends in themselves because these concentration states are not liberating. They arise and pass, as do all states. They're born of conditions and they change with conditions. But that does not make them unworthy. And the worthiness, I think, of these very deep concentration states and the joy that is born of them is that they offer a glimpse, actually an unshakable glimpse, of the vast potential of our hearts and minds, not only for stillness but for very profound levels of joy, often that we don't even really have an inkling of. The other way in which these, this, this kind of joy is very worthwhile is that it's inwardly generated. It's not born of getting anything. It's not born of getting rid of anything. It's not delivered by something else. It is sometimes people's very first experience of what inwardly generated joy actually looks like. It is the joy that is born, actually, of developing a disciplined mind, a disciplined heart, um, a very collected heart and mind, freed from fragmentation, free from distractedness, freed from obsession, in which the hindrances kind of fade away, and it is actually a mind of ease and a mind of gladness. You know what that mind is? <laughs> it's a mind that's really a friend. It's a mind that's really a friend. And if I think of it, you know, one of the, certainly one of the uh, deepest values in this path is to cultivate a mind that is a genuine friend. You're happy to wake up with it in the morning. (laughs) You're happy to sit with it. You're happy to walk with it. You're happy to take it to bed at night because you know actually how that mind is going to, how it operates. This is, by the way, not a kind of mind reserved for a spiritual elite. 
This is the capacity of everybody's mind in this room. But this inwardly generated joy is offering a glimpse on an insight level. I think it offers a glimpse and a taste of a kind of inner sufficiency. You know, we can search the whole world over for happiness. And yet if you glimpse that inwardly generated happiness and joy, you actually know unshakably that there is no happiness that you are going to gain through pursuit or through craving that is going to compare to the going to compare to the heart that truly knows an inwardly generated joy. It just doesn't compare. And the effect of that, actually, the effect of this kind of joy is really to lessen the craving and the identification that operates in our, in our life. It's another dim- dimension of joy. I hope you're getting happier by the moment. <laughs> and not thinking, why don't I have that, you know. There is a joy, that, another quality of joy that is spoken of, that is really the joy of born of a very heartfelt appreciation of ourselves and others. It is the joy of gratitude, found within gratitude. Martin Luther King Jr., he once said, whether we realize it or not, each of us lives eternally in the red. We are everlasting debtors to known and unknown women and men. When we arise in the morning to go, to go into the bathroom and reach for a sponge, which is provided for us by a Pacific Islander, we reach for soap that is created for us by a European. Then at the table we drink coffee provided for us by a South American, or tea by a Chinese, or cocoa by a West African. Before we leave the house, we are already beholden to more than half of the world. I think it is helpful for us to pause again and again in our days to know that this very life we live, no matter how it is, is actually a gift of many. Of course, we can go through our days preoccupied with all that we don't have and have never received. And joy and gratitude is certainly not a a denial of the deep painfulness of feeling uh, not enough, that we have not received enough love or support or acceptance. Yet here we are, actually, in the only life we can live. And choosing moment to moment, where we are going to make our home. In resentment, in envy, in blame, in insufficiency, or in our capacity for generosity. And sometimes I think we inch our ways. You know, we speak about immeasurable and unshakable joy. But as I spoke about it with Meta, you know, sometimes we inch our way towards the immeasurable. It is a path. And we inch our way towards the unshakable. And we do that often in the very midst of our resentments and our blames. Mary Oliver wrote a poem, I think very much speaks to this. She says, my father, for example, who was young once and blue-eyed, returns on the darkest of nights to the porch and knocks wildly at the door. And if I answer, I must be prepared for his waxy face, for his lower lip swollen with bitterness. And so for a long time, I did not answer, but slept fitfully between his hours of rapping. But finally there came the night when I rose out of my sheets and stumbled down the hall. The door fell open, and I knew I was saved and could bear him. Pathetic and hollow, with even the least of his dreams frozen inside him, and the meanness gone. And I greeted him and asked him into the house and lit the lamp, and looked into his blank eyes, in which at last... I saw what a child must love. I saw what love might have done had we loved in time. A 
appreciation and gratitude is also something we learn to offer inwardly to ourselves. Honoring the efforts we make, the sincerity we bring to being here, the path that we walk, which is not easy. There are many other things we could be doing with our minds right now. There are a lot of other things we could be doing with our time and attention right now. We are, as we've often talked about, always practicing something. There is never a moment in our day, in our life, that we are not practicing something. And yet, here we are doing all that we can to plant the seeds of inner freedom. We see, I think, in the human mind this this kind of inclination to primarily perceive what is wrong, what is imperfect, what is lacking. We see out of that the whispers of craving and aversion that run through our our day, tendencies that only ever serve to contract us and to close our hearts. I think cultivating appreciation and gratitude and generosity, you know, it really rests upon this simple willingness to open our eyes, to open our minds, to be able to receive, to be able to give. A student of mine um, on retreat had a catastrophic um, kidney collapse that devastated uh, her mind, uh, I mean, devastated her life, devastated her body. And I ran into her recently, and she said that her brother had offered her one of his kidneys, and she was about to go for this transplant. And I saw, just saw the joy in her eyes, and, you know, I got a little teary. I felt such a surge of joy for 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 this remarkable gift and the generosity of her her brother. And, you know, she said to me, you know, my brother doesn't even have a spiritual practice. (laughs) And I thought, not too sure about that. (laughs) Now, we may or not be the recipient or in need of such gifts, Yet on our daily basis, our our very life rests upon the kindness and the generosity of others. This has been true all through time. You know, now, you know, kind of uh, people study, you know, sort of evolutionary trends, and there used to be that phrase, the survival of the fittest. But actually there's new thinking. It actually is the survival of the kindest. You know, the species that have actually survived are those who knew how to protect each other, how to form community. There's a few dinosaurs missing. I might mention this. (laughs) Other reasons, too. The teaching also speaks of altruistic joy, our capacity to celebrate the happiness and the well-being of others. This is not about being happy for another because they win the lottery, you know, or they get a nice new car or, or anything. That would trivialize joy. Altruistic joy is really speaking, or, or appreciative joy is really speaking about this kind of selflessness that can arise when envy and covetousness and resentment really don't appear. There are some mudita phrases, um, Appreciative joy phrases from a Sri Lankan translation. They go like this. How wonderful you are in your being. I delight that you're here. I take joy in your good fortune. May your happiness continue. Now when we, for when I first heard that, first heard those phrases, quite frankly, I can tell you my reaction was like it was saccharine, you know. They might sound a little sentimental, you know, something we might feel when we fall in love or, you know, you see a newborn baby or a cute puppy, you know, and you think, oh, so glad you're here. Because... (laughs) 
Because they're not about sentimentality, altruistic joy. Mudita is never about sentimentality. It is about selflessness. It's about the absence of that selfing in that moment, which is also the absence of separation. I think in that absence of selfing, the absence of division actually really most arises in the presence of the wholesome and the skillful and the liberating arises, as I spoke about the other night, in the midst of metta and generosity, empathy, spaciousness, kindness. There is a lot of room for appreciative joy. In the midst of ill will or resentment or comparing, envy, uh, there's a lot of selfing that's going on and a lot of othering that's going on. There's not much room for joy. I think as, as we become more quiet inwardly, and I think as we learn not to be feeding the selfing mechanism so much, we actually begin to see how the gap, the division between us and others, excuse me, becomes more transparent, softens. We see ourselves in the eyes of another. When the whole process of selfing is much more strong in the presence of envy or judgment or resentment, ill will, what happens is actually we seize upon a particular or a fragment of another person. We never see the whole. We never see the whole of that person. All that we ever see is this one piece, this one sliver that we have isolated, reacted to, and assumed it to be the whole. We actually deliver an identity to someone else. We do this to ourselves too. We seize upon something we find we don't want in ourselves. We seize upon a sliver, a fragment. And in that identification, we forget it's not the whole. We deliver an identity to ourselves. When we are seizing upon these fragments and mistaking them for the whole, rooted in envy or or ill will, basically we're slamming shut the windows to joy. A lot of this path that we've spoken about, we're actually cultivating the conditions of heart and mind that open those windows quite naturally. It becomes very clear, I think, in our own experience, the more I in you is solidified, the less joy there is the greater calming of the I in the you is the greater degree of joy. And again, this is really a moment-to-moment practice. This is moment-to-moment, always questioning, what are we practicing, what are we cultivating? Knowing in this moment something is always being cultivated. The conditions of joy or the conditions of agitation and struggle. I think there's an element, another element of joy, I think, that is born of really learning what it means to be so wholeheartedly alive and present in our lives. And being alive and present, fully alive and present in our lives, is a celebration. It is a fruit. It's a fruition of the practice. It's being alive in the presence of all things. Again, Mary Oliver once wrote a poem about this, strangely, it's called Mindful. (laughs) Every day I see or I hear something that more or less kills me with delight, that leaves me like a needle in the haystack of light. It is what I was born for, to look, to listen, to lose myself inside this soft world, to instruct myself over and over in joy and acclamation. Now, I am not talking about, nor am I talking about the exceptional, the fearful, the dreadful, the very extravagant, but the ordinary, the common, the very drab, the daily presentations 
Oh, good scholar, I say to myself, how can you help but grow wise with such teachings as these? The untrimmable light of the world, the ocean shine, the prayers that I made out of grass. There is an almost an eternal law that as understanding deepens, so too will gladness, so too will happiness, so too will stillness deepen, deepen. So too will our capacity to be at peace with all things, to be touched and to be, be delighted. The very nature of mindfulness is to illuminate the moment. It is to illuminate the world we are in. But to know that, we need to cultivate mindfulness. It's part of an eternal law that the less impatience and clinging and judgment there is as it begins to fall away, the less loneliness, the less despair there is and the greater the joy. This is not always a linear process. But in this path, we begin to discover, in the path of mindfulness, begin to discover those small tastes of freedom and there is great joy in this. And we, we have all tasted moments of joy in our lives. At times they've been very fleeting. At times they've been deeper and more lasting. If we are to cultivate joy as an inclination, just as we cultivate metta, just as we cultivate compassion as an inclination, then, you know, there are questions to ask of ourselves, each of us. And to ask what it is that stifles joy. What is it that leeches joy and happiness from our hearts and lives? It may be that we're just too full to be touched by the quiet whispers of joy, whispers that are drowned out by the volume of our preoccupations and our habits and our busyness. I think in Chinese calligraphy, the symbol for busyness trans means heart-killing. And busyness is not about the many responsibilities we have in this life. Busyness is about a state of mind. Even a retreat, we can be so busy. Have you noticed how difficult it is to unhook? How many of you, quite honestly, have not looked at your phone these last three days? Well done. (laughs) But it is difficult to unhook, isn't it? It's difficult to unhook. Somehow we feel that if we unhook, we're going to be lonely, we're going to miss something, we're going to be left out. I'm not talking about those of you who have vulnerable family at home. But you know what? We have more contacts and less connections. And that is the sadness. More contacts and less connections. When we are too full, it is very little can touch us. You know, if we filled this bell with cushions or blankets and hit it with the striker, there's no sound. Or perhaps a dull thud. (laughs) That might be the best we get. Our lives and our minds can be simply too full. I recently read a survey that was done, a research survey of the most common deathbed reflections. Obviously, they asked these people this before they died. (laughs) But, but, you know, it's amazing how universal they were. I wish I'd made more time. I wish I'd cared more. I wish I'd allowed myself to be touched more. I wish I'd loved more. If I was in this practice, I'd say, I wish I'd been less obsessed. Because then I missed so much. Thomas Merton, he once said, to allow oneself to be carried away by a multitude of conflicting concerns, to to surrender to too many demands, to commit oneself to too many projects, to want to help everyone in everything, is to... is to succumb to the violence of our times. 
Now, I think this is a great challenge in a lay life, actually, where the possibilities of doing are endless. Where there are so many voices that call us to do more when actually our hearts are telling us to stop more and to do less. When there's so much pressure in our world to become someone, to become something, to accomplish more, to perform more as measures of our worth, And I think we all need to be so mindful of the effect of this on our hearts and minds. It's not as if we can step out of this world. But we do need to ask where we are making our home. Joy requires some rest. Joy requires some capacity for stillness. Responding to our life. It's not a need to step out of the world. But our ability to be more wholehearted in all that we do and at times to simplify, to look at where we live with the busyness, the state of mind called busyness, because this is rarely the state of mind called joy. The shape of our life mostly reflects the shape of our mind and the shape of our mind gives birth to the shape of our lives. We can be full, full not so much of doing, but of preoccupations and obsessions and plans and projects and expectations. We hear the ongoing hum, sometimes shout of our thoughts, what Stephen Levine, I think, once called the unfinished symphony that's never going to be done. So much, so many thoughts, so much to agitate about, so much to worry about, so much to be anxious about, so many stories about every single thing that we see and hear and touch. And what is our practice teaching us? This is not a life sentence. It's not a life sentence. The disciplined mind invites true joy. Disciplined mind invites true joy. Discipline, you know, originally is born of the word, same roots of the word love. So I think our discipline in this path is really genuinely inquiring about what we love. Because what we love, we give time to. What we love, we give attention to. What we love, we nurture. And of course, the invitation in this teaching is to love stillness, to love connectedness, to love aliveness, to love clarity, to love peace. It's not an easy practice, but it's a practice of the moment of learning to calm the stories, to listen to the stories that each moment brings us instead of being lost in all the stories we have. The wondrous thing about joy is that we don't have to wait for the difficult or the agitation or the worrisome to go away. You don't have to wait for thoughts to stop. We don't have to wait for sadness or sorrow or fear to go away. Joy, like all of the other Brahma-viharas, is a relational quality. In the midst of sadness, in the midst of agitation, a mind that's too busy, we're not speaking about the joy of rapture, but we speak a lot about the joy of spaciousness, the joy of gladness, the joy of being able to attend. Well, in those moments of busyness, what does it mean to pause, to stop, to step outside, to look at the sky surrounding the silhouettes of the trees? In the moments of agitation, does it mean to stop and to listen to the song of the bird arising and passing? In that stillness to feel our body breathing and to feel our feet touching the ground. To see the flow of events arising and passing of all things and knowing too that sadness and sorrow and loss are all part of that same fabric arising and passing in their own rhythm, part of a whole, 
knowing that we never were in charge or the conductor of this orchestra. Learning that quality of receptivity that illuminates our world, then sadness can be. Sorrow can live in a spacious heart. A spacious heart, a gladdened heart, is not crushed by despair. It's not crushed by sadness. Looking carefully at our own minds and hearts, we begin to sense what it is. that We begin to sense it's not life that stifles joy. It's not the sadnesses and the sorrows that come in this life that suffocate joy. But there are a couple of tendencies that have a pretty major effect on our capacity to live with gladness. One certainly is obsession, and I'm afraid the other is craving, because both of them have a very, very common thread of agitation. With obsession, we turn inwardly. We become a prisoner of emotionally driven thoughts. We contract, and in that we feel our world becoming smaller and smaller. And agitation has dominion. Agitation then rules consciousness and indeed our life. With craving, something else happens. We turn outwardly, we turn forward, actually Craving is seeking a substitute for joy. Not, not, it again is not condemning sensual pleasure, but the craving for sensual pleasure is something very big. It's even the, you know, the craving for fantasy, the craving for becoming. It's that sense of wanting, to live in a state of wanting is to live in a state of discontent leading forward into a better moment, a better experience. Forward into all the imagining, all the thoughts we have about the kind of person we want to become, the kind of experience we need to have. Just that sense of not enough. It's very sad to think about it, isn't it? Very sad to think of living in such a way of of pursuing these poor cousins of happiness and to live in a state of discontent. There's no gladness in craving. If the work of metta is to uproot aversion and the work of compassion is to allow us to meet sorrow and pain without fear, with empathy and responsiveness, I think the insight aspect of joy is to calm the agitation of craving and of obsession. Being able to step outside the moments of obsession and craving and to be able to just ask ourselves very gently, what in this moment is actually lacking? What in this moment is actually lacking? Because we see that craving is born of a sense of lack, born of discontent leading to further discontent, Craving is an agitation that leads to further agitation. It's an unarguable law, I'm afraid. Agitation and craving do not lead to calm. (laughs) We might just get that. (laughs) Learning that we can pause. You know, joy is a path. Learning that we can pause in the midst of those small and large cravings where we start to prowl the world. Start to look outwardly what we feel to be missing inwardly. That we can pause, we can stop, we can listen and ask ourselves, where is the stillness, where is the calmness, where is the joy in this moment? And it may be closer than we think. As Rumi once said, today, like any other day, we wake up empty and frightened. Don't open the door to the study and begin reading. Take down a musical instrument. Let the beauty we love be what we do. There are a hundred ways to kneel and kiss the ground. Craving and obsession really only have one taste, which is a taste of imprisonment. And joy too really only has one taste, which is a taste of freedom. And that is a taste that we cultivate within this practice, within this mind, this body, this life. 
however they may be, however they may be, cultivating our capacity for spaciousness to be touched, to be received. I'd like to end with a poem by Naomi Shihabnai. She says, it's difficult to know what to do with so much happiness. With sadness, there's something to rub against, a wound to tend with lotion and cloth. When the world falls in around you, you have pieces to pick up, something to hold in your hands, like ticket stubs or change. But happiness floats. It doesn't need you to hold it down. It doesn't need anything. Happiness lands on the roof of the next house singing and disappears when it wants to. You're happy either way. Even the fact that you once lived in a peaceful treehouse and now live over a quarry of noise and dust cannot make you unhappy. Everything has a life of its own. It too could wake up filled with possibilities of coffee cake and ripe peaches and love even the floor which needs to be swept the soiled linens and scratched records. Since there is no place large enough to contain so much happiness, you shrug, you raise your hands, and it flows out of you into everything you touch. You are not responsible. You take no credit, as the night sky takes no credit for the moon, but continues to hold it and share it, and in that way be known. Thank you for your attention. Let's just have one breath. So walking period now, we'll come back at quarter to nine for the last group sitting. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.